Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Coolangatta podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. In a world that is dominated by narratives of fear, anxiety, and worry, what does it mean that joy is not dependent on outward circumstances, but on the inner state of one's heart? You've joined us in our series, Philippians, where we are exploring what Paul meant when he wrote to have joy in everything and the importance of living in unity among believers for the sake of the gospel. We pray that this message is a blessing. If you haven't read the book of Philippians before, it is by far, it's either my favorite or equal favorite book in the Bible. It's amazing. Give it a read. But with that said, how about we dive straight in and see where the whole book begins. Would you turn with me to Philippians 1 verse 1? It says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time. I thank my God every time. Guys, that is not sometimes. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from that first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and the praise of God. I love this book. I hope you can start to see why I love this book. Even the first 11 verses are meaty and beautiful. So how about we turn to God in prayer and we invite him to begin unpackaging, unveiling what it is he has for us to say. Would you join with me? Holy God, that is what you are. Holy God, a father welcoming us into relationship with you. That you're a God of intimacy, a God of kindness, a God of closeness. That before we move forward in this sermon, before we move forward in this morning, would you actually help us pause and remember that you are here? Not with an agenda, not with a to-do list, but with open arms and a warm welcome for every single one of us. With grace that abounds for all of our failures. This is your scripture, not my nice words. So I just pray, would you draw us in, put aside the distractions, put aside the things we're using uh, to hide from you, and just invite us again to remember that you are a very present, very welcoming, very loving God who today is at work amongst us, your people. Be praised. In Jesus, in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
In 2019, I, had, I lived in Southport, and I had a whole collection of different housemates to the ones I had now. And uh, they don't come here, so I can say whatever I want about them, but I'll, I'll keep it mostly nice. Um, but they, no, they were great people, um, if they ever listen. Um, but they were some of the most spontaneous people I've ever met in my life. An example of this, I went to work uh, one day. I was a barista, so I'd get up really early, go to work, but come back around midday, 1 p.m. I get home from work. I walk in through the front door, and uh, this husky just comes and leaps on me. Now, for reference, we didn't have a husky. So I turn to my housemate that's home, and I say to him, there's a husky on me. <laughs> What's going on? And admittedly, he was adorable, so I wasn't too annoyed. But I did want to know what had happened. And he said to me, he woke up that morning and decided that he wanted a dog. And so, you know, he didn't want to be too hasty. So instead of out and out buying a dog, he joined a group on Facebook where you can dog sit. And he found a bunch of random strangers with a husky. And he said, yeah, we'll dog sit for you. And so he let me know this. And I went, oh, okay. Thanks for telling me. <laughs> Thanks for letting us all know. This is a great group decision. Um, and I said, okay, what do we need to know about this husky? And he goes, well, I googled how expensive huskies are. So, uh, in short, don't kill it and don't let it run away. And I went, oh, okay, so they're worth a lot of money. And I went, anything else? I mean, aren't they classic rules, right? You don't let any dogs die or run away. So really, that was useless. But anyway, the second thing he said to me, uh, I, said, I asked him, well, anything else I need to know? And he said, this husky's quite smart, I've been told, and really mischievous. So, if you have anything valuable, maybe just keep it out of its way. And you know, I just thought to myself, great, we have a dog that's worth more than me hoping to break all my stuff for a weekend. This is going to be fun. And the next day, I'm studying in my room. I'm, I love dogs, but my skin doesn't always love dogs. So I, I locked him to his dismay out of my bedroom whilst I studied. And um, I realized I had to grab something from my car. And so I go out of my room and I think, wow, this dog's really quiet. Who, whose bedroom is he destroying right now? And I, I'm walking out and I get to the front gate. My car's behind it. I get to the front gate. I open it. And as I open it, just this blur of speed flies past me. And I'm like, oh no. And I realized he had worked out that this gate is the way we get in and out of our house. And he had just been sitting, waiting for some poor fool like me to open that gate for him to bolt on by. So, we start, so I start this wonderful 10 p.m. Southport routine of chasing a dog down the street, probably looking crazy to anybody else because I'm yelling snowflake out loud uh, repeatedly. And, and, and I, get, I get to this dog. Uh, sorry, I don't catch this dog, but I get around a corner and the dog slowed down. And he's just looking at me. Like he's just standing there like challenging me to come after him. And I knew what he was doing, but I didn't know what else to do, so I went after him. And every time I got closer, he just went faster and got further away. And every time I tried harder to catch him, and every time I put more effort into catching him, I felt like he was just getting further and further and further and further away from me. Until the point, a random stranger who saw what had happened, and this man is a hero. I want him to hear this sermon, so he hears me say this. Um, a hero. He happened to see the dog and just out of the blue caught his collar. And I thought he honestly looked like a superhero with how quick he moved. But he caught the dog's collar, and now I am not in debt with a husky on my head who ran away. But anyway, so what a hero. Let's shout out to that guy. Um, but as I reflected, it, reflected on it, one thing that caught my attention, one thing I realized was that dog was a lot like happiness. And I don't mean for any good thing. That dog was a turd. But what I mean is, <laughs> what I mean is, the faster and the harder I try to chase it, the further and further away it seemed to get. Isn't that true with happiness? The more energy, the more effort that we put in to trying to make ourselves happy, to try and catch this elusive thing called happiness, the further away 
it seems to get, the more we notice the gap between us and what we want. There's a remarkable author. His name is Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, from the 1800s. He's considered one of America's best authors uh, ever. And he said this, joy or happiness is a butterfly, which when pursued is always just beyond your grasp, but which if you just sit down quietly may alight upon you. Or a very witty Englishman called C.P. Snow, he said it this way, and I like this, the pursuit of happiness is the most ridiculous phrase. If you pursue happiness, you will never find it. True, right? True. The Apostle Paul had a different strategy. He didn't worry about happiness at all. It wasn't one of his themes. Instead, he invited us into a thing he called joy. A thing he called joy. And the whole book from beginning to end of Philippians opens with the theme of joy. And circumstance to circumstance regurgitates this theme over and over again to show how it isn't just a side feature to the Christian life, but how joy is central and prominent to every part of what it is to be God's people. It's phenomenal. My hope for today is that like the Philippians, we would grow in joy as we partner with one another in the good news. And that we might, like Paul, not find ourselves chasing happiness, but rather moved by the abounding power of joy in the, hope of, in the hope we have in Jesus' coming and in the joy we get to experience of him already being present in intimacy and love towards us. Let's jump in. Verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I, just, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Ten years before this was written, a decade before pen touched paper, the Apostle Paul was on his second missionary journey, and he was going through modern-day Turkey, and he had a whole plan of where he was planning to go. And as he was going, it says in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit shut a door to him and the plan he had was no longer possible. And so Paul, he couldn't go where he wanted. Him and his team were stuck. And he went to bed that night. And it says that God came to him in a vision. And the vision was of people from the region Philippi was in, Macedon. And it was people from this region with their arms outstretched, Asking Paul to bring what it was that he had. Asking Paul for help. Asking Paul for the gospel. He wakes up the next morning impassioned with a new drive for where this mission journey would go. Him and his team of missionaries, they change course and they go to the capital city of the region, Philippi. And they go, okay, we're going to pray and discern where it is the gospel will begin to spread. And they move towards a river. They get to the river and they make conversation and they begin preaching and sharing the gospel. And sure enough, God had brought them there. A lady named Lydia. She was a Gentile lady, a lady from Greek kind of culture. And she was wealthy. She traded purple fabric, which means she had money. And she heard the gospel and was so moved by it, even though she seemed to have everything. She was so moved by it that she went, yes, I want that. That is what I've been looking for. That is the answer. Enthused by this convert, infused by this movement of the gospel, Paul presses into the city, him and his team, and there's this, this poor slave girl who is filled with a demon and being abused by two men who are using the 
awful uh, thing that this demon is doing for their financial gain. And this demon starts ridiculing Paul. And Paul, seeing the situation this girl was in, he responds with the very same thing Jesus would. And in Jesus' name, he casts that demon out. That demon's gone. The two men abusing this girl are so annoyed about the fact that they've lost their source of income. Talk about evil. They stir up the whole city, stir up the whole city, and cause a riot. And Paul and his whole crew end up in prison as a consequence. Now they're in prison. It's been a, it's been a heck of a day. <laughs> you know, they've, they've seen a convert. They've seen Christianity advance into a new city. They've seen liberation from demons. But, but also, somehow, they've ended up on the wrong side of the law, and now they're locked in prison, and they choose. Do we celebrate what God's done, or do we enter that dangerous state called despair? And they say, no, there's only one option, we praise. And so they sing out the praises of God. They sing them loud, and God moves in a miracle, and the doors come off, and they open up, and, and, and the prisoners are free. And, and the prison guard, a Roman man who understands what honor and duty is, realizes that if the doors are open, the prisoners must have escaped, and his only option, having failed his one job is to take a sword to himself and end his life. Paul, discerning what was happening, cries out, wait, we're still here. And a prison guard begins a conversation, hearing the gospel. And not only he, but his whole family wind up giving their lives to Jesus. A rich Gentile woman, a young ex-demoniac slave girl, and a Roman duty-bound guard they are the three pillars, the three people with nothing in common on which this Philippian church is founded. What a remarkable beginning to a church. Paul moves on. He goes on with his missionary journey, and the Philippian church goes as well. They grow. They continue spreading. The church keeps building in Philippi, and Paul and the Philippian church remain in contact. So much so that a decade of ministry following, every time the Philippian church crosses Paul's mind, he can't help but thank God for all of them. And every time he kneels down and he prays for the Philippian church, he's overwhelmed by the joy he experiences towards them. I mean, guys, that is a big deal. Imagine Paul writing to New Life Church, Kulangata, and he's like, friends, every single time, I think about New Life Calling Gather and the people in it. Man, I just have, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. I have to interrupt it just to take a minute to thank God for the wondrous privilege. Now, I would do that, but Paul is a big dog in Christianity. You know, that would be a big deal if he said that. And then not only that, he goes, now every time I start to pray for New Life Calling Gather, I'm just overwhelmed by joy. I'm like, these are words I would love Paul to say about our family and our church. What was it? Tell me more about why this was the experience. And I think what we've got to know first is that this is actually a letter all about joy. This isn't just one thing he brings up at one time. This letter is all about joy. In fact, the entire purpose for verse 4 existing is to draw attention to the fact that Paul experiences joy. It is the first theme that is brought up in the entire book. And, 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 and it's one that will keep coming up. In I've already said it, but in tons of different circumstances. And yet the word's only mentioned once in this section. Verse 4, he brings it up. And then in 5 to 8, he takes the time to explain why he feels joy. And then in verses 9 to 11, he continues by explaining how this joy-driven prayer sounds. So, how does, so verse 5, how, how does he begin his explanation? Verse 5, because of your, that is the Philippians, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day 
until now. Why does Paul feel so much joy? His first reason is because of the Philippians' partnership in the gospel from that first day until then. From that first day to 10 years later, this was a group of people who had joined with Paul in the mission of seeing the gospel continue to grow into fruition to all people groups, to all situations, to all classes, to all races, to all genders, to all skill levels, to all the earth. And he goes on in verse 7, and he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. See, when it came to the declaration of the gospel, the Philippians have been right there for 10 years, declaring, defending, and fighting for the gospel to advance. And yes, that means evangelically. It means they were going to people who don't know the gospel and sharing it with them, but also in discipleship. The gospel was advancing in their community, in their lives. They they were growing in maturity. They were growing in Christian culture, the way they lived and the way they did life together and treated one another and the world around them, all of it growing as the gospel advanced in their community. And then also, this was a church that for 10 years, when times of suffering, persecution, and even prison came about, and even when these things fell upon Paul, who was their kind of guide and mentor, they they saw these situations and didn't reply, uh, respond in distress, but rather they responded in faith and faithfulness to God's grace advancing in this world. And it's no wonder then. That Paul sums up in verse 8 how deeply his joy and affection for these people go. In verse 8, he says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. He says that his affection for the Philippians mirrors that kind of affection that we know Jesus Christ is filled with. And if you don't know this, let me tell you this. The kind of affection that Jesus Christ has, the kind of longing for us in this room today that Jesus, our Savior, has was the kind of affection that led him to a cross to lay his life down in the desire to see us welcomed home and welcomed into his arms. This is the kind of affection Jesus has. And Paul, in this section, is saying, actually, I'm kind of starting to feel something similar for the Philippian church itself. This is how deep it goes. That is a big deal. So this is Philippians, a letter about joy to a community Paul loves, written not to rebuke or challenge. It's unique because it's written to celebrate, to love, and to encourage a church. And what does Paul see as central to the thriving of a fellowship of believers? He sees this, a desperate need for joy. I wonder if in this room today, we take joy as seriously as Paul does. I wonder if in this room today, we recognize that joy is not something on the out and out we hope one day we feel, but it should be central to our perspective of how to be a Christian people. So filled with joy, desiring to teach it, Paul offers the first reason that he can't help but respond to this circumstance with joy. He is blessed to have godly and kingdom advancing relationships. That's his first reason. He's just so blessed by these godly people around him and his kingdom advancing fellow uh, you know, Christians that he has, these relationships he has with them, and he just, he just moved to joy by it. Verse three, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Verse six, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
Some days, joy is obvious, right? Some days, joy is natural. Some, day, joy, joy, some days, joy makes sense. Uh, relationships or circumstance or the Holy Spirit, what can we do except for feel that, that, that overwhelming response of joy? It's just instinctual to us. But some days, the letter goes on to tell us that we don't respond with joy. There are some days where we need to respond with a different word. Paul introduces this word later on in the letter, and the word is rejoice. It's similar but different. It's not a joy that we just respond with. It's not passive. It doesn't just happen to us. But it's the kind of joy that empowers us to walk through life no matter what comes our way, no matter what reasons we don't have to feel it. What a crazy thing that there is a joy that actually exists, that no matter what happens in our life, no matter what we lose, even when life is terrible and it's hurting, there's still a source of joy in which we can respond, experience, and feel in that moment and in that day. But how? I mean, if Paul's joy was solely rooted in the fact that he had friends and partners in the gospel, uh, you know, the Philippians, then, you know, all they would have to do is reject Paul and he wouldn't feel joy anymore. And so he moves on to his second reason for why he feels the kind of joy he does. He says in verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul adds that he has a deeper reason for joy, a joy rooted in the living gospel that's at work, and news that, 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 that by means of the Holy Spirit perfecting Jesus by his blood cleansing and the, and the Father in love accepting us back to himself, we, the church in relationship, experience something that can never be dulled by the sufferings of this world. This is the kind of joy that when the mountains are high, we can't help but respond to. I mean, we've all, I assume many of us have had moments in worship where it's like we're not even trying to feel good right now, but the move of God in our spirit is so strong, we are just belting and celebrating and declaring the praises of God. These are those mountain high moments. But then also there are valley low moments, where in those valley low moments we can sit and still taste the joy of God to rejoice in him a joy that is chosen, a joy that is actively saddened, a joy that despite circumstance moves deeper than any emotions. And so how, you may ask, do we catch and chase this surefire joy? What is it to rejoice? Well, remember that puppy from the beginning, right? The more and the harder we chase after it, the further and further it gets away. You know, it's the same with joy. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. In chapters 3 and 4, and this is a spoiler, so you know, we'll pretend you haven't heard it when we get there. Um, but in chapters 3 and 4, he says that we rejoice in the Lord uh, always. Again, I will say it. Rejoice. You hear the difference. It's not just feel happy by getting stuff. Again, I'll say it, feel happy. No, because we know that doesn't work. He says, if you want to rejoice, I'll tell you where you find that joy. Not by looking at joy, but in the Lord. But in the Lord. As we sit with him, rest in him, reflect on him, spend time with him. And it's as though the, the joy awakens from a slumber. It can't help but fill us. It can't help but fill our souls up and we get overwhelmed by it. It's huge. This is the kind of joy that Paul promises is true for us today. This is not an idea, a myth, a philosophy. This is a reality that we as Christians in this room are expected to believe in. And if we're not experiencing it, then we just ask this very simple question, God, what am I missing? God, what lie am I believing? God, help me move towards it. Because I don't know about you, but I would very, very muchly so like a joy that I can feel when everything else around me isn't going quite as well. Anyone else? Yeah? yeah? Come on, preach. In verse 6, we see a real odd phrase. It says this, the day of Christ Jesus. 
And um, I want to point this out. If you ever read in the Bible and you zone out, there's a good chance you hit an odd phrase. You know what I mean? When you read a Bible verse, something just gets a bit too weird or a bit too difficult. You zone out. You read, come in like two pages later. You're like, wait, what happened? And you go back to that point where you zoned out and you realize it's because it was a weird phrase you didn't understand. That's kind of what this is, you know, this, this day of Christ Jesus. And we look down to verse 9 to 11 in this prayer. We actually see this phrase repeated again. And in the Bible, repetition always means it's reasonably important, so we should pay attention. And why this is a weird phrase is because it's actually referenced to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the prophets would use the phrase, the day of the Lord. So the day of Christ Jesus, the day of the Lord. You see the similarity there. Right? And the day of the Lord was a reference to the day that God would come in a, or a Messiah would come. The whole world would be judged and a remnant of Israel would be filled with hope, life, and abound in wholeness once again. And Paul goes, hey, we don't have to say the Lord as though he's some nameless, shrouded figure. I tell you who the Lord is. The Lord is Christ Jesus. And so I'm going to call this what it is. This is the day Christ Jesus is coming back. This is the day he's returning. And on that day, judgment will be done and evil will be destroyed. And in that day, a hope for all humans, the hope of all Christians will be seen as true. And we will be able to enter and experience the presence of God forever. And so in verse 6, right, it teaches us that there is a holy intention of God in our hearts and in our lives, a work that he is doing inside of us, and he is going to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ, until the day that we just spoke about. In other words, friends, hear me, there is an ongoing work happening in this room. And I know it doesn't always feel like it. I know sometimes we ask questions like, God, where are you? Why does it feel like 10 years in, nothing's changed? Why am I still facing this same sin? Why do I still want to respond in such a frustrated way when someone does this or someone does that? Why am I so hopeless when this situation hits me? And it just feels like, God, you said you're meant to be healing my heart, and yet I ain't seeing it. And the promise of this verse is this. Don't lose hope. God's promising that he is going to carry on this work until the day of Christ Jesus. Don't lose hope. He promises that a day is coming where this will be completed. He's promising that this work isn't meant to be done like that. This work does take time. But he's promising, and my God is a God who keeps his promises. He's promising that we can count that he is moving right now, today, in this room. As we seek and as we trust, we will never be the kind of people to accuse God of not moving. Because our God is a God who's promised to move. And so that means when we can't feel it, he's moving in ways too deep for emotions. What a joy. What a joy. And so we trust, we trust, we face life, we face the difficulty of our own sinful natures, and we trust that our God is a God who is still healing our hearts and isn't done. In verse 10, it it clarifies that on this day, this work he's doing, we will be made pure and blameless. That's the good work he's going to complete. We will be purified, and we will be blameless before God. And friends, he who began this work will complete it. So here's my question. Have you ever seen this work begun inside of you? This is good news for you, friends. Have you ever seen this work begun in you? Have you ever perhaps hit a moment where you reject a sin you once never would have or perhaps once would never have even noticed, right? Do you ever just yearn for Jesus to come and sit there with you and for you to sit with him, which is a real odd thing to do if the Holy Spirit wasn't alive in you? Do you have a heart that has begun to break? for the suffering and the wounded and the needy people in a way that once you could just walk right past them and not feel a thing? Do you ever, or have you ever sat, walked and felt the living Holy Spirit within you? And friends, let me tell you this, the Holy Spirit's begun a good work in you. 
which means you can be confident that good work will be finished. It will be completed. It will be brought to completion. My friends, there is a purity and a blamelessness that will be a part of your identity forevermore. It's guaranteed. It's in the book. You can't argue with it. And that is a confidence we get to have. This is a work that will be completed. It is a day booked into God's calendar. It's already been established, and it can't be undone. And this day, described as the day of Christ, thank goodness that he's saying it's going to be done by this day. Because what that means is the day we step up and we face judgment on that day, the work's completed. The work's completed. And we're going to enter with what verse 11 describes as the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That is, we're going to enter with all the righteousness Christ gave to us when he took away our sins and gave us his pure and good heart and good nature, right? He's going to, we're going to have all of the righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus, but also by the work of the Holy Spirit that we're experiencing right now today and will continue to experience for our lives. By that work, we won't just have been forgiven for our sins, but our hearts will be pure and blameless. We will be whole and healed. There will be a new nature inside of us. And we won't cease to be ourselves, but somehow we will be more fully ourselves and more fully whole and more fully healed and actually truly holy in the image of God as we were first made to be. That is a hope we can bank in. That is a hope we can trust in. And in that day, when it comes, and I think we got to get this. I don't know if anyone gets this. Do you realize that eternity it's actually a really long time. Like, I don't know, I, just checking, right? It's a really long time. This is good news. Because if we enter eternity healed, and we enter eternity pure, when you look at yourself and you see your sin nature as part of your identity, may I tell you that you're going to spend the vast majority of your existence without that nature. Right? Like when we enter life, we can find hope knowing that whatever sinfulness and brokenness and wound and heartache and, and, and just selfishness and whatever it is that we look in a mirror and we see when we see ourselves, the vast majority of our experience and existence as, as, as a living being, which will be for eternity, right? That experience of selfishness, which seems to shackle us, that we can't shake, that we just can't get it off as quick, as, quick enough, right? That experience is but a blip on the vast record of our lives through eternity and we will be more known for our wholeness and our love of God and our celebration, our healed hearts, our love of one another, our patience with one another and our joy as God's people filled with all the fruits of the Spirit. This is who we will be forever. What a celebration. And this is where I begin to see why Paul has big reasons for joy. Because this is a, a joy that led Paul, whenever, he pray, whenever the Philippian church even crossed his mind, to be forced to say thanks. This is a, a joy that we can see why, whenever, God, whenever Paul prayed for the Philippian church, he was forced to respond with an overwhelming sense of joy. Why? Because when he saw the Philippian church, he knew that this Philippian church was saved. He knew this Philippian church had a hope. He knew this Philippian church had a future coming that was so beautiful and so bright, and he knew he got to see it with his own eyes because just like it was true for the Philippian church, it was true for Paul. And just like it's true for Paul and the Philippian church, friends, because Jesus is that good, it is true for us today. Because if in this room you have received Jesus, if you have started a relationship with Jesus, if the Holy Spirit has pushed back your sin nature that good work will be completed. And the day is coming. And that day will soon be upon us where we get to sit with God unobstructed in his love and his mercy and his kindness. And we will no longer be our own worst enemies, but we will be free.
And so filled with celebration and joy and hope and anticipation, he overflows in prayer. And verse 9 says it this way, verse 9 to 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Paul's first reason for joy was the fellowship of the Philippian church, their partnership in the gospel to see God's goodness keep expanding into worlds and hearts all around us in a world filled with sinful and suffering people. And his second reason for joy is his confidence that we all have an eternal hope. But friends, this isn't just a, your sins are forgiven, now go on doing what you want kind of hope. Let me tell you why. Because that doesn't heal anything. Your sins are forgiven, now go on keep hurting each other. How does that help? You seem to forgive and keep being selfish. You, you need to be insecure. How, how does that help? No, this is the kind of forgiveness that isn't just a, I've cut off the past. It's the kind of forgiveness that says, hey, I'm going to make it all whole. I'm going to make it all whole. And this is huge because for Paul, for Paul, well, actually, even before I get there, we read verse 9, and it says, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and the depth of insight. And what's crazy is that word knowledge, it quite literally means the word recognition. It's about familiarity. The root word for it is actually uh, intimacy and, and, and used quite often in the realm of sexual intimacy. This is not just knowing facts about God, friends. This is not just saying I could win a Christian trivia contest and therefore I'm a good Christian. This is about saying I know God because we are friends. We are in relationship. There is intimacy here in this room, in this place, in this space, in my heart between me and God. And everyone in this room has the freedom to boldly and honestly say the same thing. For Paul, that cause of joy is because of forgiveness. There is the room and space that we can be welcomed into the arms of God. And as we lean in and chase intimacy without strings, without trying to coerce God to do something for us, right? there is a healing of the damage that our sin natures have ravaged within us and around us. Friends, it's not even just that one day our hope will come true. It's that as we press into God and live intimately with God, Paul's promise is that it will start being real to us today. And we will start seeing the the, the sin-ravaged, relationships, the sin-ravaged souls that we have, the sin-ravaged situations and circumstances, hurts and pains and bruises that are still hurting on other people's souls. All of that will start healing and a process of, of life, of wholeness will continue advancing by the power of God and his friendship with us into the world around us and into our own hearts. That's huge. It's crazy as it's in fact the only reason that the Philippian church could even have been prompted to begin to partner with God, with Paul, sorry, in the gospel, is because first they partnered with God in intimacy. Without the second reason of relational intimacy with God, there could never have been the first reason of deep relationship with one another. Without deep personal intimacy, that odd trio of first converts would never have found cause to partner together. If first each of them hadn't truly and deeply fell in love with God, they would never have had a good enough reason to stay uh, in love and fellowship with one another. And without that deep personal intimacy with God, the early and growing Philippian church could never have earnestly, deeply, and in a way that lasts so long, stayed in partnership with Paul for the gospel. Timothy Keller says it this way, Paul's prayer for the Philippians is a reminder 
that our love for God and for others should be growing and deepening every day. As we seek to live for Christ, we should be growing in our knowledge and our understanding of Him and in our ability to discern what is good and what is pleasing to Him. So in his book, All About Joy, Paul opens with two reasons, two places, two two modes of life where he can do nothing but respond with joy. See, this isn't the part of the book where he talks about choosing joy. This is the really easy bit where he's saying, here's some good reasons we can just go through life and respond with it. And his first reason is this, that he has godly and kingdom advancing relationships. Friends in this room, do you? Do you? Are there people in your life that you sit with and you don't know how you got onto the subject, but you're talking about Jesus again? Yeah. Are there anyone in your life that you don't mean to be a good person doing nice things, but somehow when you hang out, the, the mission of God gets done a bit more? I've had those friends. I'm here preaching and desiring to spend my life in ministry because of the formation I received from friends of mine throughout my early Christian uh, walk that were the kind of people who unashamedly and somehow so easily would just walk towards God. The kind of people where we would just end up feeding the homeless. And I don't know how that started, but somehow there we were two months later feeding the homeless. The kind of people where we would street evangelize, find out that was weird, not sure if I liked it, but sure, we'll give it another go. It's the kind of people where we're not trying to be holy, but we just love Jesus together and walking in that direction. I wonder, do you have those friends? And if not, if not, would you be willing to trust that there is a joy in friendships like those that you won't find easily anywhere else? You'll just respond with it. Would you be bold enough to join a small group in this church? Would you be bold enough to to reach out to someone in this church who you respect or whatever and just go, hey, let's grab a coffee. I'd love to hear your story. Would you chase these friendships because you believe in the Bible and you know that when Paul said this is a source of joy, that that means it's a source of joy for us today, godly, kingdom-advancing relationships. Do you have those? And the second place that he found joy overwhelming and bubbling up inside of him was this deep, intimate relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Friends, do you have this? Do you have this? I don't mean have you given your life to Jesus. If you haven't, I'm so excited to pray with you in a moment. I'm so excited to see if perhaps today God's going to move in a way where you would feel free and welcomed for the first time to make a decision like that. I don't mean do you accept Jesus in your heart. I mean, do you enjoy prayer? Do you enjoy prayer? Do you sit with him just because you like him? Do you make time to sit with God just because he's your father? Is deepening intimacy with God a priority in your life? And friends, do you trust that he likes you? No, I didn't say do you trust that he loves you. That's Bible language. We all know he has to love us. It's in the Bible, right? Do you trust that he likes you? He calls us friends. He started that language. We didn't. Right? Do you trust that he likes you? That he's with you? That so often he's working on ways to deeper emotion. I wonder today for both the Christian and the non-Christian whether some of that longing for joy that just nothing else is filling, it could be filled today as we draw together in fellowship but also as we make space in fellowship to draw closer to the open warm and welcoming arms of Jesus. This whole letter, it begins in verse two with a blessing and a promise. Before I read the blessing and the promise, here's what I'm gonna say. Paul starts every single one of his letters with this blessing and promise. And he does it because before anything else, these are the things he wants his church, he wants the Christians, he wants the readers, he wants the believers, the fellowship of Christ to know and to know for sure. And so he's like, before you read anything else, read this and let it sink in. In verse two, it says, 
grace and peace to you. From God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder today if you know that there is grace and peace to you. I wonder if you know that for all the reasons you think God right now is closed off to you, that there's grace. For that hard heart, that lack of emotion, that that apathy, whatever else you could think of for why God wouldn't want to be with you right now, I want you to know that there is grace and that because of that grace, there is peace and you are welcomed with a soft, open heart to just sit with God. Your prayer life is not an achievement. It's It's not a workplace. It's just an open welcome. Would you come and sit with God? Would you lean back and let him be a father? And you, what, kids don't achieve anything. They're just menaces. They just sit with the parents or the friends and they just do them. They just do whatever they do, but they do it with the parent. And I wonder if there's a kind of intimacy that we could have with the father, where we just be ourselves with him in all the honesty and trust that his grace is enough. His enough to cover where we don't believe enough, where we don't feel righteous enough, where we fail, where our sins still bind us, and where we maybe uh, don't have the emotional uh, bent towards him that we should. Because this grace and peace, it's yours because of something Jesus did many years ago. When he did it, he had you in mind. When he was betrayed by his friends, it was you in his mind. When he was beaten, mocked, scorned, it was you he was thinking about. When nails went through his hands, it was you and I he was considering. When he was raised on top of a cross and began gasping for breath, it was us he was thinking about. And when having died, he began to pay for every failure, sin, and brokenness we've ever done so that we never have to. It was a joy set before him that we might sit with Jesus, Father God and the Holy Spirit in intimacy. That's what got him there and that's what brought him through it. That's the reason he pressed on for the joy set before him of us freely receiving what Jesus did and choosing to respond by sitting in open and trusting intimacy with God our Father. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for three people. The first is Christians in this room who are struggling with intimacy with with Christians, with those strong Christian friendships, but also Christians in the room who are struggling with intimacy with God. The second group I want to pray for is is, is non-Christians in the room, people who are open perhaps today for the first time to saying, I don't know if I believe any of this, but I want to start a conversation with him because if he could be true, it's worth saying hi. It's worth welcoming him in and say, God, I'm here. And thirdly, we're starting a six-week series on joy, and I, I, I fear to myself perhaps there are people in the room who here we're doing a six-week series on joy, and it actually scares them because they're scared to put hope in again that maybe, maybe joy might become a reality to them. People in the room who, who perhaps say, I, I, I don't know how to engage or believe or, or to put my heart on the line, and I believe that through this series, God wants to move in such a way that that breaks, that that heals, that today and this series over the next five weeks, there will be a turning point and true and deep and lifelong joy will become a reality, not just to you, but to your community and to everyone in this room. And so if there are people in the room who are hesitant or unsure how to approach this series, I wanna be praying for you. Would, would, would you join with me in prayer? Holy God, I thank you so much. I thank you so much that you are mercy-filled, that you are kind, that you're a God who draws close, not because we have achieved something, not because we are good enough, not because we are are your holy people without fail, but because you look at us with soft eyes, open arms and say, man, I just love you guys. I just wanna be a father to you guys. 
God, I pray for those in this room who struggle with intimacy with you. I pray that those who are putting up big legalistic walls or are, are scared of all their failures or maybe the opposite way, they don't even know how to begin to care. They just feel too gone in their sin and so they just make excuse after excuse. Whatever it might be, God, I just pray in the name of Jesus that they would see first and foremost you don't want their achievement, you want them. And God, would you teach the ways as people begin to step and say, okay, God, I don't know what I'm doing, but I want intimacy. Would you begin to teach ways? Perhaps it's something fresh in you, just sitting and listening to a worship song in the morning. Perhaps it's praying through the Lord's Prayer or reading one or two verses and just reflecting. Or maybe it's just sitting and being and being okay. I don't know how you will teach us and invite us into a season of intimacy, but I believe, God, that's what you're going to do. And for those who are yearning and desiring for fellowship in such a stronger and more beautiful way, not not worldly friends, but friends of a kingdom of God. I pray, my God, as we say, okay, where do we get those kinds of friendships from? That sounds good. That you would open doors and from this community or from other communities, you would make ties between people that we would have strong partners in our life before you, God. There would be strong relationships and fellowship in our, our walk towards the kingdom. And God, I pray for those in the room who hadn't heard the gospel, haven't heard it, and it's never sunk in before. I pray right now, my God, you'll be moving in that space. That with all eyes closed and with all heads bowed, and we don't play with this because it's about honor. So with all eyes closed and with all heads bowed. Perhaps there are some people in this room who have heard the gospel for the first time. And they've heard of a Jesus whose love for them isn't fake and it's not built on religion, but it's, it's a deep and intimate love. And so I'm just going to count to three, no magic trick, no special anything. I'm just going to count to three. And if today you want to start a conversation with Jesus, I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand so that I can see. And that's all. All eyes will be closed and all heads will be bowed. But just one, two, three. If that's you today and you would like to say, you know what, I don't know what I believe or what this means, but I, I, I want to start a conversation with Jesus. I want to begin to turn to him. Or perhaps if you're a Christian who's walked away and want to come back, just raise your hands in the air now. With all eyes closed and with all heads bowed. Come on. And finally, Lord, I just want to lift up and pray. Pray for all those people in the room who are kind of afraid of this series. I know you put it on my heart to pray for these people because you have an intention to heal it. And so I just pray, my God, you'd begin and continue to do that now. I pray we'd be praying for one another. We'd be standing in the gap for each other. And I pray above all, we would begin to grow in confidence that my God, you are a God at work and we can trust that you are a God who wants, this joy is not superfluous, it is central to our faith. Would you reveal that to us, God? Heal our hearts. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to respond in worship, so I'm going to invite you to stand. But if any of those three or anything else has prompted you and you want prayer, just before the crossover there, you come throughout worship, or if you come after the service, we'll be there and we would love to pray for you. But how about we stand and respond with worship? Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page.